Some time ago, I remember uh, watching a little short video. Uh, it was of a crime that had taken place. And uh, in this video, it was intriguing what, what took place. As the crime had taken place, eventually, you know, someone was videoing this thing, and eventually something happened. Eventually, the blue lights showed up. The police showed up. And in that moment, as this crime was taking place, what was captured on video was two things took place. Number one, the bad guys fled. As soon as they saw the blue lights, they knew it's time for me to run. And number two, the good guys ran to the blue lights. Those who were in trouble, those who were in harm's way, they knew safety had arrived. They had somewhere to flee to, they had someone to run to, and they knew that they would be protected if they could get towards those flashing blue lights. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the same sign, the same symbol, and yet for two different people with two different hearts meant two different things. For one person, the sign of those blue lights and the police showing up meant run. I'm in trouble. Why? Because I've done wrong. And for the others, it meant come here for safety. You're protected. We're entering into our fourth week right now of, uh, actually this is our third, it's our fourth week of Advent, third week going through the book of Isaiah, looking at these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, about the Savior. And that word Messiah, the word Savior, it means anointed one. It's the one whom we've seen God had promised from all, from all the way back in the earliest pages of scripture, he would send somebody to deal with our problems. One of the great apologetics, uh, that's, that word simply just means ways of defending your faith. One of the big questions in apologetics people often have is, if God is real, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he step into our, why doesn't he actually solve anything? And, and Advent, quite literally, is the celebration that God has done something about it. God has stepped into the story. He's, he's, he's brought himself into our own narrative, into our own brokenness. And in Christmas, we're, we're celebrating this reality that God, the transcendent God of the universe, humbled himself and took on flesh. Today, we come to one of the most memorable uh, prophecies in all of the Old Testament. And it's memorable for a number of reasons because it's a phenomenal, remarkable prophecy, but it's also one that we sing about. In fact, we just sang about uh, a few minutes ago as we were singing worship because it has to do with that word Emmanuel, which means God with us. There was this promise that was made that one day God would enter into the human story through the womb of a virgin. Now, the prophet Isaiah, who gave this prophecy in the Old Testament, his ministry was uh, very long, long. He ministered over a 60-year period, and he ministered to a number of different kings. Some of them, he went and he spoke prophetic words and healing words, and they were good kings. They were quite remarkable men who, who loved the Lord, brought reform into the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And other kings who he prophesied to were wicked kings. Today, we meet uh, what is more than likely the most wicked king during the lifespan of Isaiah. We're back in Isaiah, we're looking at this time period. Remember, this is about 700 years prior to Jesus Christ being born. So this is a long time before. We're in a season of Israel's history where wickedness is ruling in Israel. There's idolatry all over the land, and the pinnacle of the wickedness is the man who sits on the throne himself. The guy who was supposed to be pointing everyone to God. Everyone, this is who God is and how we follow his law. Ahaz is the wicked king. And the question I have for us today is this. In this passage, a sign is given. A sign is given, much like that police sign that I mentioned earlier. But as we study this sign today, 
The question is, what kind of sign will Emmanuel be for you? Is it a sign of great comfort and security, or is it a sign that you must flee? Let's read the text together. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through, 15, through uh, 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." This is a fascinating little passage, and actually, if we wanted to read the whole text, it would go all the way through the end of the passage. As you see, this hopeful passage that for us we sing about is actually couched in a judgment passage. Isaiah is bringing judgment on Ahaz for his sins and for the wickedness he's brought into the land. Let's go through a bit by bit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little bit more time than usual in the context, developing for you who this man was in order for us to understand what this would have meant. And then I'm gonna to try to apply it to us in our own lives. First of all, it says again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Now, Isaiah has been speaking, essentially he's been called by God in chapter seven to go speak to Ahaz. But notice this language, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. What's happening here is actually Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz, but God is speaking through Isaiah. Now we might glance over that or gloss over that, but that's actually very important. When a prophet of God speaks, authoritatively, it is the word of God himself. So, so, so Isaiah can be speaking to God and God can say, the Lord is speaking to, to Ahaz. You see that? He speaks with the exact same authority. So the exact words that come out of Isaiah's mouth, in the exact order, with that exact grammar, that is the authoritative word of God. When a prophet of God speaks, he speaks the very words of God himself. That's the level of authority that he has. Now, Israel. Ahaz was the king of Judah. Let me give you a little background here so you can really get this. This is important, so make sure you try to follow as best as you can. Who was King Ahaz? If we went backwards a few years before Ahaz, you'll remember Israel was one united kingdom and King David was the king over it. King David is considered perhaps the greatest king in all of the Bible. And he was a good king who made many mistakes but whenever he made a mistake, he always found King David repenting and receiving the forgiveness of, of God for his sins. There were many kings who made a lot of mistakes and never asked for forgiveness, but David was a good king, and under him it was one united kingdom. But after David, his sons and his sons' sons made a lot of mistakes. And Israel ended up going into civil war with each other. And it was divided into two kingdoms. To the north you had Israel, 10 of the 12 tribes were part of that, and to the south you had Judah, which had the capital at Jerusalem. And Judah was really the line of David. Judah was the great hope. Israel had a lot of, you know, a, a lot of idolatry early on that was going on, many more wicked kings, but Judah, there was hope, right, in the south. Ahaz ends up being a king in the south over Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital. Now, Ahaz was not just a wicked king, but I said it before, he was perhaps the most wicked king that Israel has ever had. 
The situation was twofold. There was both internal wickedness and externally, this moment that Isaiah's prophesying had incredible political turmoil. First of all, internal wickedness. Internally, Ahaz was a man whose every action revealed that he did not worship the God of the Bible. His job was to point people to God, but he did not. We read in 2 Kings uh, chapter 16, verse three, we read this. Describing all the wickedness Ahaz had done, it says he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Okay, so here's a king who's set up idolatrous statues all across the land. He's set up all sorts of wicked abominations across the land that God said, your job, king, is to make sure that this doesn't take place. And then as the capstone of his wickedness, he adopted the pagan practice of burning a living son on an altar. Now, now in our minds, it's very difficult for us to grasp this idea that, that a king would do this. But what he was doing is he was making the biggest sacrifice he could make to a false god. It was his way of saying, look how much I love you, false god, that I'm willing to burn my son alive in order for you to be appeased. This is, in scripture, the killing of a child is the, uh, always the very last after long lists of sins. It's the lowest a society can go. Internally, this was a man whose heart was far away from God. But externally, there was pressure all around him. In this moment of time, it was a very rough political situation. The two kingdoms, remember, there's a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel. They're supposed to be united, but they're divided. And they're on the verge of war with each other. The northern kingdom has hired another country to come together, make an alliance, and they're breathing down Judah's neck. And Ahaz is feeling the pressure. Not only that, but far to the east, the Assyrian Empire, one of the greatest empires in world history, is growing. And it's threatening, moving west, slowly, over towards Israel and over towards Judah. So he's feeling this pressure of civil war in Israel. He's feeling the Assyrians coming. In this moment in time, normally what would stop big empires from the east coming over was Egypt that great empire, but Egypt was weak in this moment. Egypt had no power anymore, and so the Assyrians were just coming and coming and coming. Eventually, civil war did break out. Second Chronicles chapter 28 records that. Israel attacked Judah, and in that first battle, we're told that 120,000 of Ahaz's men fell in battle. 120,000. Another 200,000 women and children were taken captive. They were actually released because of the work of a prophet who went and helped them get back. But you can tell how disastrous this was. Judah was not a huge kingdom. To lose 100,000 men in one battle, he's feeling the pressure. Now, what do men and women of God do when we feel the pressure? If you're a Christian, you should have some sense of what we're supposed to do. What does a proper response look like? When you feel all this turmoil and stress and pressure coming in on your life, let me suggest three things. Number one, the first response is always praise. The Christian, no matter what the situation is, we fall on our knees before a holy God and we say, God, I might not understand the circumstances, but I know this, you're worthy of worship. And right now, I give you my heart. You are worthy even in my darkest moment. We offer praise. Number two, we offer confession. Now, why do we do that? Because oftentimes, the hardships that come in our life are consequences for the sinful actions we've taken. Not always, not always, But very often that's the case, as is the case with Ahaz. Many of the the, the 
the problems that were coming into the nation of Israel and into his own life were direct consequences of his own sinful actions. And so in confession, the Christian goes before God, even when we're not sure if there's something to confess. We hold our hands open like this and then we say, God, is there something here? Am I missing it? Have I been proud? Have I lifted up my heart too high? Have I not sought you? Right? We hold open hands with God. Praise, confession. And then number three, we pray to God for help. Because don't we know that God loves to help his children? Isn't that the God we serve, that he's always waiting for us? He's like a good, a good heavenly father who, when his children ask for help and they say, this is, the, this is what's happening, will you help God? So often he comes and responds, maybe not in the way we expected, but he responds. Many of you in this room know that very well. That's how people of God respond. Now, what did Ahaz do? When the pressure was on, when, when civil war broke out and 100,000 of his men died and Assyria was coming over here, does Isaiah praise God? Does he confess to God? Does he pray for help? Well, no. He takes matters into his own hands. He calls the, the Syrians up, not the Assyrians, the Syrians, who are a, a smaller little nation, and he asks them for some help. And then he, what he ends up, I take, well, then, then what he ends up doing is he calls the Assyrians, that empire to the east. He says, hey, help me win this civil war. So they come over, help him win the civil war. Then you know what the Assyrians do? They, take, they, they, they go to battle against him as well. They lock him up. And, and here's what happens. When Christians take matters into their own hands, this is the thing with Ahaz's actions. It seems almost logical, doesn't it? For if, if we didn't know God, if we were just people, and we were looking at his political situation. We're saying, okay, he's on the verge of civil war. There's a big power over here. Yeah, they're willing to uh, ally with him and help him get freedom. Why not? That sounds like a pretty good plan. Practically speaking, Ahaz might have gotten high, high marks at that point. But then Assyria turned on him. Then what does he do? Now he's really stuck. Now the pressure's really on. We read this, 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they might help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So here's what he does. He sees all the pressure. He sees the Assyrians. Then he says, look, I've seen some people over there who are worshiping to the gods of Damascus. Let me worship them. He goes into the temple. He puts a big lock on it. doesn't let anybody go into it. He breaks a number of the elements, chops them up into small pieces, and then begins worshiping false gods, thinking, it's working for them. <laughs> if it's working for them, I might as well give it a shot. Let's see if it works for me. And it was the ruin of him. Into that context comes our passage today. Isaiah approaches Ahaz, this great prophet of God. The Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, now this is interesting. That language is actually very similar to language Jesus used. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. And there is a verse that says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now when Jesus used it in the wilderness, you'll remember the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And, he, and the devil said to Jesus, throw yourself from this temple and let angels save you. And Jesus responded to him, quoting this exact passage, Deuteronomy chapter six. He said, no, you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. Now in this moment, is that what Ahaz is doing? Well, context helps us because we know the heart of this man a little bit. 
And I don't think the text itself gives us the, the derision which, which, with which he was speaking. The sense I get from the man Ahaz that I read from scripture is that he was functionally cherry picking the Bible to justify his own actions and what he wanted to do. Ahaz already had his mind up. This is what I want to do. Then he went through the scriptures, said, I can get away with it by quoting that verse. See, that one supports my actions, see? No actual desire to know what does God really say on this. No actions to look at all of the scripture, put it in context, recognize God's word, just a desire to utilize enough of scripture to come off as a godly man to justify what he really wanted to do, which was just be practical and get through the moment. Ahaz says, well, God's had enough of that. He says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Notice the language has shifted from your God to my God. The prophet now looks at Ahaz, who previously he talked about your God, and he says, are you wearying my God? He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the sign is promised. When we read of prophecies and signs in the Old Testament, we've actually come across signs a handful of times at this point in this series. Signs and prophecies often had two meanings to them. On the one hand, there were short-term immediate meanings, as in this, this sign is going to be immediately fulfilled in some way right now to speak to you in your current circumstance. But then also, they oftentimes had much larger um, long-term meanings and significance. We've seen this already in this sermon series. And so in this passage right now, uh, there is an immediate short-term meeting for Ahaz, and then there's a long-term, ultimate meaning for him. And the thing about reading the prophets is that you can't always tell the difference between these two things because they just seem to flow in one narrative. They just kind of flow. All of a sudden, for example, in Ezekiel, you're reading about a king, but then you're actually reading about Satan who fell as an angel because of his pride, and then you're back to talking about the king again. And this, the astute Bible student is, is, is putting this together and seeing how prophetic passages work. And so we have to put this together. Now, what was the immediate meaning for him? Well, the immediate meaning, actually, is that in verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what would that sign have meant for Ahaz? It meant his time is short because the blue lights are coming. It meant that God is gonna step into the story and he's not gonna put up with wickedness like that when he comes. And so immediately for Ahaz, when it says a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call him Emmanuel, Ahaz's eyes would not have said, oh, I can't wait for that moment. Ahaz would have said, I've screwed up. And now he's got an option. Do I keep going the route I'm going or knowing the Lord's coming, do I change course real quick? Well, we already know Ahaz's heart. We know exactly the kind of man he was and what he did. Now, secondly, though, the rest of the passage is actually interesting because it begins to talk about something else. He says, verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil, choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. I think in verses 15 through the end of the passage, Isaiah, has, is, he's done talking about Emmanuel at that point. In the beginning of chapter seven, Isaiah actually took his son, his, Isaiah's son took his son with him to go confront Ahaz. And most commentators say actually from 15 to the rest of the passage, he now looks at his little boy who's standing with him. And he says, Ahaz, see my little son right here? 
He says, by the time he reaches the age of accountability, your kingdom's over. It's all done. You've lost it. The Assyrians are gonna take you over. He's not, another three years tops, and then this is over. This is a judgment passage. Immediately, that's the context. Now, what's the, the bigger, what's the ultimate meaning here? The ultimate meaning is much broader than that. The prophet is giving a glimpse in verse 14 that one day God will step into the human story and when he does, that will be a sign for all people everywhere that the king has come. The time is up. Things will change forever. Now, Ahaz is a man who's forsaken God. He had a responsibility to lead God's people towards godliness, but he had completely abandoned that. He, in fact, he had sacrificed his own son on an altar to try to appease false gods. For Ahaz, this is a sign of terror. God's gonna be with them. But for those who trust in Jesus Christ, those who are actually underneath the banner of God, those who worship God, who follow God, this is a sign of come run. Come run towards God. He's entering into the story. This is actually a sign of salvation, that God's shown up to, to make good on his promises. You see, the same sign can mean two different things for two different people, depending on what your heart is before God. Matthew chapter one, which we quoted it during our lessons and carols service, says this about this exact passage. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes from our passage today, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of God with us. Let me walk through this just a little bit so you can understand this fully. The God of the Bible we call a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We worship a Trinitarian God. He is both unity and diversity. That's very important historical language. He's both unity and diversity. He's unity because it's one God. This is a monotheistic religion, and yet he's diversity because it's three people in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and yet together they make up one God. Now this is fascinating language because what this means is when it comes to the incarnation, it's the Son, it's the second person of the Trinity who entered into the human story, uniting himself with a human body. I'll never forget when I was little, it, we, I took uh, Catholic CCD classes, and I'll never forget one day that the lady teaching the class, and I said, well, if he took on flesh, who was ruling the universe? And she didn't have an answer for me. And I remember going home and that was actually a troubling question for me. He's a little, little Rafe, like thinking big philosophical thoughts. If he's in a body, who's, where's God up there? And can I tell you that question actually, if you look on apologetics forums and you ask, ask secular folks their questions about God, that's a big question people have. Well, let me answer it for you. We worship a Trinitarian God. And so when the second person of the Trinity humbles himself, takes on human flesh, and steps into the human story, God does not cease to be God over all of creation. The Father is still ruling. The Holy Spirit is still active. The Trinity is still working, even though he stepped into the story. You see the difference here? The Athanasian Creed, one of the great Trinitarian creeds, we read this. 
Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller, referencing the three people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. Now, Now, you might ask, how can one plus one plus one Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal one. (laughs) Wouldn't that equal three? And to that I say this. Aren't you glad that God is so mysterious that he's bigger than math? In college, I had a a, a roommate who was, uh, it was was a sweet mate actually, who was a math and science major. And he said, I got you, Rafe. (laughs) I said, what do you got me with? He said, I can disprove God. He said, God must submit to math. And I said, well, you got it all wrong because one plus one plus one equals one. (laughs) God doesn't submit to math. Math submits to God. Math exists in this world because God is a God of order, not a chaos, and he's brought that into this universe for it to work. But know this, our God is bigger than math. And there is a mystery because he is a transcendent God. And I don't quite understand how it all works. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three people equals one God. The second person has stepped into our story. Now let's get some more details about the second person of the Trinity. When he took on flesh and stepped into the story, number one, we know he was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father, 1 John 4, 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. They have different functions. They relate to each other in terms of relationship. The Father sends the Son. That language is all through 1 John. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, The firstborn over all creation. Firstborn meaning in terms of rights, not meaning he was created in terms of the the inheritance rights of a firstborn. He's a visible image of the invisible God. So when you look at Emmanuel, when you look at Jesus, you're seeing the, the, the visual image of God in a perfect imprint. So much so that in John chapter 14, when the disciples said, you know, we've never seen the Father. Just show us the Father, Jesus, and we'll be, we'll be satisfied. How does Jesus respond to them? Jesus responds to his disciples. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. Now, Philip, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, this is good Trinitarian theology right here. When you look at Jesus, when you study the life of Jesus, you are seeing a perfect image, a perfect imprint. You are seeing the Father in all, its, in all of him. There's nothing he did that in any way would distract you from seeing exactly how the Father would behave, exactly who God is and what he's like. And so if we're chasing after godliness, that means we chase after Jesus. If we want to know what would God do, what would he have us do, we look to the life of Christ because he's the imprint of the living God. Now, let's get this to the heart a little bit. This sign is one of two things for us. It will either be for us, if we're honest, if we truly ask our heart, where are we today? It will either be a sign that ought to cause us to run this way or it ought to cause us to run this way. You either run away from the lights that are showing, or you're running towards them for safety and salvation. 
And today I wanna to use Ahaz as a bit of a test case for us, as a, as a bit of mirror, to look in Ahaz's mirror reflection and say, is there anything in here that's reflecting that? And if so, I better make sure I get my house in order so that I don't flee the way Ahaz fled. Let's go through Ahaz. What was, what was his behavior like? Well, we know that he was breaking God's laws. We know that he locked up the temple. We know that he was sacrificing a child on an altar. We know that he was taking matters into his own hands rather than seeking the God of the Bible for help. We know that he wasn't a man of prayer. And we certainly know that he didn't have much high regard for the prophets. The sign of Emmanuel will be one of two things for us. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, says Jesus. In the Bible, there's one of two places we can be. And, and it's all about the sign of Emmanuel. This is, the, this is the hinge point on which your entire life and my entire life will be measured. What do we do with Emmanuel? Let's use Ahaz as a case study for us. Number one, Ahaz broke God's law. All throughout Ahaz's life, he was setting up idols. He refused to remove the idols that were in the land. There were actually idols that were in the land from before him. And some of the good kings, like Hezekiah, like Josiah, when they studied the law, they came in and they said, tear them all down. We're done. Every false idol, it's getting torn down under my reign. Ahaz didn't care much for that. In fact, he set up new ones. And then we know he sacrificed his son. So let's use Ahaz as a mirror right now. Do you cherish and love God's law? One of, the, one of the test cases for this for us, that I, I think we let ourselves off the hook a little bit too easy on this. When others break God's law around you or joke about God's law being broken, does it grieve your heart? Do you cavalierly, do you, with a cavalier sense about you, jest about God's law being broken? What he's designed as right when you see wrong taking place in the city, do you immediately just go to the politics of it all? Or is there a moment where you, your, your soul grieves that the God of the universe, the God that you love, that his law would be so trampled upon by others? Is it just political? Is it just practical? Or is there a grieving of the heart over God's law? Let Ahaz function as a mirror for you. Number two, when hardships came, he didn't turn to God. Ahaz, you know, he was a king. He dealt with hardships in a way that a lot of us won't deal with. I mean, he was dealing with war. He was dealing with nations and empires. He was very similar to a lot of us. He was a practical guy. Pressure was on. Civil war is breaking out. There's a big guy over here. Let's partner with him. He sees that it's working for them over there. They're, they're worshiping the gods of Damascus. If it's working for them, if their people are prosperous and happy, why don't I worship the gods of Damascus? It can't hurt to at least try. Purely practical. How do you respond when the stress is on? Let Ahaz be your mirror for you. Go back in the last year. End of year is a good time to take a little reflection. Look at how you responded, how you behaved. When the pressure was on, when, when there was stress in the home, when there was disagreement in the home, when, when challenges were confronting you and, and, and you didn't quite know, you didn't see how it was gonna work out and it kind of looked overwhelming. You know, sometimes God lingers a little bit in responding to our prayers and that's a good thing because he's a heavenly father who, who forms us over time through our, our, our struggles. But when you look back at how you dealt with your struggles, did you lean into God? 
What were the three things we talked about? It was, it was praise, confession. It was petition, asking God. Is that how you deal with your challenges? Or is it just simply go, get, get it done, take care of business? If it's just take care of business, I fear the sign of Emmanuel may be a cause for you to flee rather than to run towards it. And there may be a level of deception here that we're actually lukewarm and we're interpreting this sign all wrong. Number three, Ahaz destroyed God's temple. So when Ahaz was really the pressure was on and, and he knew that uh, the Assyrians were coming, he, he, he wanted to lock the temple up. In fact, he put a lock on it. He didn't let anybody go in it and he destroyed the objects in the temple. Now under the new covenant as Christians, the temple is the people of God. It's not a physical building anymore. It's the people of God. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit. Together we are the temple of God. What do you do with the temple of God? Do you cherish it? What you do with God's church, his people, says a lot about your faith. It tells you if there's legitimacy here because if the church, God's people, is the bride of Christ, the great groom, then if you really don't care much for the bride, then I can tell you you don't care much for the groom. Are you lifting this place up? Are you caring for this place? When issues come up, are you sacrificially serving and praying and co-laboring together to, to resolve? Are, are, you, are you stepping into this place as a humble servant? What do you do with the church? Let Ahaz be a, a mirror for you. Finally, Ahaz faked real faith. When, when, when he was confronted, finally, the word of God confronts him, which happens every Sunday when we preach from the word of God. The word of God confronts him. And he's got that moment. What do I do right now? How do I respond? What did he do? He cherry-picked the Bible to justify his behavior. So, this is probably the biggest sin I see taking place on a large scale in the modern Western church. One of my roles that God has, by, by grace, sustained me in a little bit is to step into a number of of difficult theological, modern cultural problems we're facing on some small scale. I, I get to be kind of in these places and, and think through them biblically. And more often than not, in fact, this last week, stepping into some difficult theological conundrums and, and difficult cultural sensitive issues. And more often than not, the question people are asking is not, what does God's heart really say on this issue? I genuinely want to know because if I'm off, I'm off and I'll be the first to repent of it. That's not the heart. Usually the heart is, well, the Bible, here's a verse, supports what I'm saying. And then I'll step in, I'll say, look, if you read it like that, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, right? You can't, you're taking one verse entirely out of context and you're justifying what you want to, what you, what you want to believe. And I'm telling you, there's a whole theology here. Let me help you. Here, let's piece this together well. No. I just want to go on my way believing wrongly that the Bible asserts what I want it to say because I've got a modern mindset. If you just want the Bible to justify what you want to believe, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Here's the reality. The sign of Emmanuel will cause some to flee this way and will cause some to run this way towards the sign to find salvation. You know why? Because Christ came and died for Ahaz's like us. 
So when I say, when I, when I walk through the way Ahaz broke God's law, what, what should be happening is not, well, I don't do that. That's not the posture anyone should have, myself included, because I do these things often, little ways. I find myself justifying things I want the Bible to say and taking it out of context, and then I, then I gotta go back and, and reanalyze and put it back together, and then I, I develop my theology better, and I... We have to have this relationship with God where, where the son gets to be the son. The king gets to be the king. Because all of us have broken this. We've all strayed from this. And if that's you today, I want you to know God spits out lukewarm. Lukewarm is not what's in, what inherits the kingdom. You've been called to much more than lukewarm cherry-pick the Bible. You have been called to a living faith of submission to God and no matter what your story is coming in today, maybe you're coming in today and you're saying, I've been lukewarm for a long time. Or maybe you're coming in today and you're saying, actually, I wasn't even lukewarm. I've been Ahaz for a while. Can I tell you, the son has come. Emmanuel, God with us. The, uh, the prophet Isaiah said that God would show up and he'd step into the human story and he did. And the highlight of it all is not the birth in the manger. That's a wonderful miracle that we celebrate at Christmas, but that child grew to a man that took your place on a cross. For Ahaz is like us, for men and women who broke his law, who cherry-picked the Bible, who don't truly want him to be king, but at times want us to be king, Christ died that you could have it all forgiven, but you've gotta repent and you've gotta trust in him. If there's no repentance, if there's just take, take my Jesus and go on with my merry way, so that I can go on living and, be, and justify the life I really wanna live over here. But if there's no repenting and turning and then trusting in the king who died for you on the cross and saying, no, I follow him. I'm a Christ one. I'm different. I, I, I'm not gonna follow the ways of this world. I'm gonna follow him and it will look different. It'll, it'll, it'll look different to everyone that used to know my old life. If that's not you, today, today is the day of salvation. Today is a day to turn, and if there's a degree of this in you, if there's a degree of going the other way, I, here's what I don't wanna do, I don't wanna sow seeds of doubt in your heart today, but at whatever degree you're being confronted by the word of God today, don't come to this communion table that we're gonna celebrate in just a few moments until you've done the hard work of repentance. God has come, he's stepped into the human story. He loved you so much that he didn't just leave you he didn't let you linger in sin, knowing what the consequences would be, that if you faced your judgment, if it were to come today, you would be cut off for all eternity. Rather, he stepped into the human story and he's offering you forgiveness today. Let the sign of Emmanuel be the hope of salvation for you by turning from your sin, by hoping in him, by trusting in him. And let Christmas 2022 be a changing turning point for you in your life. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you and... Uh, and God, if we study this passage in Ahaz, God, this, this sign is different than I expected it to be going into this week. I expected one that was more a joyful passage than Isaiah 7 actually is. It's a judgment passage. And God, I pray for us that we would do well to reflect on the judgment that comes with that passage. Help us, God, to think rightly about the sign Emmanuel and whether or not we are underneath his kingdom whether or not we truly have made him Lord of our life. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room right now that needs to truly repent before receiving the communion meal, that we would do that, and then with wide open arms, receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ who buried all of our sins at the cross with him. We love you, Lord. We give you this Christmas in Christ's name.